0: Well, if you return then with me to Galatians chapter six, uh, it's page 1172 in the green church Bibles, and page no, one18,13 in the large print Bibles. Uh, and this evening we're going to look at verses six to, no, seven and eight of chapter six, verses seven and eight. So let me read uh, God's word, Galatians six: seven and eight. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. This is God's word. And I've called this message, Sowing and Reaping. Sowing and Reaping. So the universe in which we inhabit uh, is made up of laws. Laws that govern how things work. They're laws because we know that they will always happen. So the law of gravity, on this planet at least, means that if I jump in the air, uh, I will come back down again. That is a, a guarantee Uh, A law of this world. Uh, There is a a reaction to every action and so forth. These are are physical laws uh, which this world uh, and this universe uh, work with or work because of. And God has made this universe with these laws in place. We don't know uh, a world or a universe without these laws. But we also see that in the universe that God has made there is a moral equivalent of these physical laws. Moral laws that are fixed in God's design for his universe. And that is what we see in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. The law of sowing and reaping is a law of God's universe every bit as real as the law of gravity and so forth. The context for these verses is the ongoing fight for freedom that we fight together as God's people. We're fighting for freedom. We're fighting against the flesh. We're keeping in step with the Spirit. And we're doing all this together as a family bearing each other's burdens, which we looked at last week. That's what we've been really seeing uh, from chapter 5 onwards. But before Paul signs off His letter, he gives us some motivating words to fight this fight. Some words of motivation to cause us to live for Jesus, whatever it takes, to strive to live as God would want us to live. He gives us some words of motivation that motivate us towards, first of all, personal holiness, verses 7 and 8, and then practical helpfulness in doing good, verses 9 and 10. And so we find this motivation in verses 7 to 10, beginning with the principle of sowing and reaping. So tonight we're going to think about being motivated as God's people towards personal holiness. And then next week, we'll look at how to be motivated towards practical helpfulness, of which there's much to say on that subject too. So let's begin with the principle that should motivate us. We see in verse 7, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Look at verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Now to be deceived is to be uh, led astray from the truth. It's to be led into thinking that something is real or true when it just is not. We can be deceived by others, but the Bible tells us in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9 that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? In Obadiah, it is said of the people of Edom, the pride of your heart has deceived you. So sometimes we can be led away from from God by others, but the biggest deceiver of ourselves is ourselves. And in the context of Galatians and the fight against the flesh, the deception seems to be this. I can live however I want and get away with it. I can live according to the flesh and it doesn't really matter. That is the deception. And it comes up in all sorts of ways. So you may be here this evening and you may think, well, God doesn't mind my sin because, well, it's not as bad as that person over there or that person I saw in the news or somebody else from history. So God won't mind. I'm not that bad. That's a deception. Or you may be here and, and not even believe in God or not believe that, that the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened or you don't believe it really matters. And you think, well, I haven't got to stand before God and give an account of my life. That's a deception. Many people think that. I think as Christians, we can live with the deception when we think that because God has forgiven us, we've kind of got away with sin. And if we sin again, well, what does it matter? God's forgiven me. Did you know Christian... We have not got away with sin. Jesus paid for that sin. It cost the Son of God his life. And it's a deception to think, well, my sin doesn't matter because I'll be forgiven anyway. You deceive yourself. And you may be a Christian who thinks that because you're going to heaven anyway, it doesn't matter if you live for Jesus now or not. Why bother with the hard work of following him when I'm going to heaven anyway? What's the point of doing that? You deceive yourself. We'll see why that's the case. And if you think these kinds of things, then you are deceived. Why? Look at the next part of the verse. Because God, he cannot be mocked. Now, to be mocked here does not mean uh, really being laughed at. When when, when we think of mocking, we think of, of laughing at somebody. Pointing out their faults and all those kinds of things and, and having a laugh at someone's expense. But here it doesn't really mean that. What it means is to treat with contempt. Or it might mean to try and pull the wool over someone's eyes. That's mocking God. To think, well, he, he doesn't really mind or he doesn't really see. It's to think he won't notice or won't care about the life we lead. It's a bit like um, sometimes, uh, I remember going on a walk with a child one time, they they put on sunglasses and they thought that with the sunglasses being on, I couldn't see them. And so they could kind of do what they they want. But of course I can see them and, and God can see you too. You can't pull the wool over his eyes. You can't act as if life doesn't matter and he won't care when he says he does. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. And the reason God is not mocked is because there is a spiritual law that we can understand from the natural law. Look at the end of verse 7. It says, A man reaps what he sows. A man reaps what he sows. Now, this, I think, is an easy principle for us to grasp, isn't it? Um, I'm not much of a gardener myself, but I understand that if I plant seeds of uh, uh, carrot seeds in the ground, I'm not going to have a harvest of tomatoes in a few months' time. The crop that we reap depends on the type of seed that we sow, whether it is carrots or cabbages or corn. It depends on the quantity of seed that we sow, so how much I put into the soil. And it depends on the quality of the seed that is sown. How good is that seed? Now, that's about as far as my, my gardening knowledge goes, but I'm pretty confident that I'm right on those facts. Now, there are other factors, of course, that may impact the crop, uh, such as the weather and water, but the, the principle holds true overall, doesn't it? We reap what we sow in terms of the, the type and the quantity and the quality of the seed. It is a, a natural law of the world in which we live. But Paul is saying that just like this is true in terms of agriculture, so it is true in our lives. There is a moral law here that mirrors the natural law. Now, in one sense, we know uh, this reaping and this sowing and reaping um, in the, the, in, it is true in our lives. So, for example, you know that if you eat to excess and you don't exercise, then it's likely that you're going to to gain weight. Uh, You know that if you play with a really hard ball in the, the fellowship hall, things will probably get broken when you're throwing it around, for example. But there's a positive side to this as well, isn't there? So, generally speaking, if we revise for an exam we're more likely to pass it. If we practice something, it is more likely that we will improve and so on. So we know how this kind of works and, and we see a lot of these kind of general principles, don't we, in the book of Proverbs in the Bible. But this principle of, reap, of, of sowing and reaping applies in other areas too. So here's the, the, the key, key part here. God allows... The consequences of our actions, that which we we sow, to impact our lives in what we reap. God allows the consequences of our actions, what we sow, to impact our lives in the way we reap. Now, sometimes we, we see that in this life, for both good and bad, we see the impact of our decisions. Sometimes, like a crop. The harvest takes time, and sometimes we don't see the harvest in this life, but we will in the next. And finally, one day, we will have to stand before God, every single one of us, and give an account of our lives. And so if you don't see in this life the reaping of what you have sown, it will be seen in the next And the way that the Bible describes the judgment day is akin to the language of reaping and sowing. So here's some examples that we read in the scripture. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 16, for the son of man is going to come in his father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. In Romans 2, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, And immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. In 1 Corinthians 3, the one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. And then we saw earlier in 2 Corinthians 5, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for us, for the things we have done in the body, whether good or bad. And there are more verses like this that we could go to. The, the point here is that our actions have consequences and we will have to give an account before God. Now this passage here in Galatians and even the verses we've read don't go into all the detail about what the judgment of God on that day looks like specifically. It is a, a subject worthy of much study, not for this sermon some of it comes out in verses 9 and 10, which we'll see next time. For the Christian, we know that Jesus has been judged for our sin. Just to assure you of that, we will not be judged for our sin. Jesus has taken that punishment for us, but we will be given an account before God of our lives. But the big point here, though, is this really don't be deceived. You can't pull the wool over God's eyes. You can't live as if God can't see you. He sees all. And you can come to church and you can deceive us. You can look like a wonderful Christian to everyone in his congregation. But God knows what's really going on. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. I can. I've had the wool pulled over my eyes many a time. But not God. Now, in one sense, this is terrifying, isn't it? But as we go on, I want you to see that as Christians, we don't need to fear if we are not being deceived. If we're not deceived and not mocking God by living in a way that shows that we don't care about sin at all, then we can live in the forgiveness of our sins and the joy of our salvation. But this is terrifying, and rightly so, for those who live in such a way that, they, that think it doesn't matter how you live, if you are living in that way, you are right to fear this, because God cannot be mocked. And in fact, for the Christian, this should be of great motivation to serve Jesus more fervently, because we know that it will be worth following him. It is worth striving to live for him. And we'll see that more later. But what Paul moves on to now is to develop that theme of of sowing and reaping by showing us two types of seed, which produces and results in the reaping of two types of crop. The seeds are the flesh and the spirit, which has been a theme, if you've noticed, throughout chapter 5, this contrast and conflict between flesh and spirit. The crop that we reap from the seeds is either is destruction and eternal life. So we sow according to the flesh or the spirit and we reap destruction or eternal life. So we're going to look at the next two points after not being deceived of reaping destruction and reaping eternal life. So first of all, the first part of verse 8, reaping destruction. So notice the beginning of verse 8. Look with me there. Paul writes, "...whoever sows to please their flesh." Now, pleasing the flesh is described in chapter 5, verse 13, as indulging the flesh. In chapter 5, verse 16, as gratify the desires of the flesh. And in chapter 5, verse 19, you read a whole list of the acts of the flesh, examples of it. So remember that the flesh here is describing our human nature apart from God. It's, It's living apart from the plan of God and his design for us as his people. And so pleasing the flesh here is disobedience to God. It's following the path of our sinful desires and rejecting the ways that God has for us. And when we, we live in this way, we are sowing a seed in our lives. And in chapter 5, verse 19, in those acts of the flesh, they are basically examples of a, of a packet of seeds that we we scatter in a field, that we sow. And although in that packet of seeds there may be different varieties of of flesh, if you like, they are really one type of seed, the flesh. And so we see that that seed sown, and next we see a crop reaped. So look at the next part of verse 8. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh, from that seed... Will reap destruction. So the seed sown is the flesh, the crop reaped is destruction. Notice the destruction comes from the flesh, it's the result of the living the life of sowing that seed. Now the word destruction here uh, means to decay. It could be used to describe what happens to a corpse that's left. It, it corrupts, it decays. And when we, 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 we please the flesh, as Paul's describing here, it corrupts us. And the level of that corruption depends on the, the quantity, and I don't want to use the word quality. Uh, perhaps potency of the seed is a, is a better description. Uh, of the, the, the seed of the flesh that we're sowing. But it all corrupts us. Well, how? Because he's speaking, remember, to Christians here. How, is, how does it corrupt us if we sow the seed of pleasing the flesh? Well, first of all, there is the shame and the guilt of it. As, as, Christian, when, as Christians, when we sin, we know where to take the guilt and shame, but it's right, isn't it, that we we have that sense of it when we do wrong. There is the regret that even even when we're forgiven never really completely goes away. We still wish we hadn't done that, even when we can rejoice in our forgiveness. Then there is the, the corruption of the, the potential consequences in our life, which you never really know when you, when you sin. I've said a number of times that you can often see where a sin starts, but you can never know where that ends. It can take us into all sorts of very destructive places that we would never have intended at the beginning. King David is an example of that, isn't he? He took a look at Bathsheba when she was bathing, and that led him into adultery and murder and the ruin of his kingdom in many ways. It got out of control. But longer term, if sin is not dealt with, if you don't bring it to God and you don't repent, and you continue to sow that seed, it corrupts more and more and more. You become desensitized to sin. You stop caring about it so much. It becomes harder to stop. I think uh, pornography is a big example of this. Studies have shown how it corrupts the brain it ruins sexual relationships. It corrupts the mind. It, it causes you to indulge in darker and darker places in the images you want to see. But it's also true of, of all the sin we indulge in. The more anger you display, the more it corrupts you. The more praise you seek from others, the more you need in the future. Sin is ugly, it is corrupting, it is reaping destruction in our lives. Now as Christians, don't misunderstand me, we are forgiven of our sin, but we are not immune from the corrupting influence it has on our lives. Sowing the seed of the flesh hinders our fruitfulness for Jesus, it hinders our helpfulness to others, and in fact the seeds of the flesh that you sow in your life impacts others in the church as well. Do you remember the story in the Old Testament of Achan in the book of Joshua. Israel began losing against their enemies because of the sin of one man in the camp that brought corruption on the whole of God's people. God's blessing can be held back from a community because of the corrupting sin of its members. Now this should motivate us, shouldn't it, to fight against sin? Do you not see? To strive for personal holiness... When you are tempted to sow the seed of the flesh which comes to us all, when we are tempted to sin in any way, remember these verses. God sees it. You can't pull the wool over his eyes. And it's destructive and corrupting. But there could be worse. Because if you're here tonight and you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ... Let me assure you of this. If you sow the seed of rejecting Jesus, God is not mocked. And you reap the eternal destruction, which the Bible calls hell. So I urge you, come to Christ today. For one of the consequences of continued rejection is that your heart gets harder and harder and harder. And this may be the very last opportunity you have to repent of sin and turn to Christ. And so I encourage you to do so now. Do so today. But consequently, there is a positive side here too. For in the second half of verse eight, Paul speaks of reaping eternal life. So notice the second half of verse eight, which kind of mirrors—it's uh, kind of the other side of the coin, if you like. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, so pleasing the Spirit is described by uh, as live by the Spirit in chapter five, verse sixteen as led by the Spirit in chapter 5 verse 18, as keeping in step with the Spirit in chapter 5 verse 25. And it is pleasing the Spirit that looks like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 verses 22 to 23, those verses that you all know so well. The Spirit here is speaking of the Spirit of God, and so to please the Spirit is to do that which pleases God. It is God's ways, living in line with the will, the design, and the plan that he has set out for his people that we can read in his word. That's the seed that we sow of pleasing the Spirit. We fight sin. We obey the commands of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit living in us. And just like there is a crop that's reaped when we sow to please the flesh, there is a crop that is reaped when we sow to please the Spirit. Notice the crop at the end of verse 8. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Now you must understand that eternal life here is not, the, is not just the state of having eternal life. It is not us deserving to be in heaven. So Paul isn't saying, if you do all these good things and sow all this seed, then, then you'll deserve to get to heaven. That's not what he means. That goes against everything he's been saying in Galatians before about being saved not by the works that we do, but by God's grace. We don't reap heaven as, 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 as deserving to be there. But what this does mean is that the blessings of, the, of heaven, the blessings of the, the heavenly life are ours to enjoy in part now, as we sow to please the Spirit. So in John's Gospel, whenever Jesus speaks about life, for example, life to the full or in abundance, he doesn't just mean uh, the future life we will have in heaven, although that's part of his meaning. He also means that right now we can begin to experience the the life of the age to come as we live for Jesus today. And so, in some sense, that eternal life is lived now. So what what are those blessings? What does that mean? What is the crop we should expect as we sow to please the Spirit? Well, first of all, as Christians, we all have a destiny, which Paul tells us in Romans 8 is to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is what the Christian life is is mainly about. It is about bringing glory to God by His people being conformed into the image of His Son, meaning that we will look just like Him. And so we will look more and more like Jesus as we abide more and more in Him, and we abide more and more in Him as we obey His commands and live for Him. You can read more about that in in John uh, chapter 14. And so just as sowing to please the flesh is more and more corrupting, sowing to please the Spirit is more and more life-giving. It's more and more of the life of the age to come, coming to bear in our lives. And this is because the crop, notice, comes from the Spirit. Do you notice that? From the Spirit you will reap eternal life. The flesh is decaying and dying and will be eternally so. But the Spirit, on the other hand, is life-giving and is eternally so. So in terms of what that crop looks like, it's something like this. There is, for us as God's people, joy and blessing as we obey Christ. There is intimacy with him as we abide with him. And that's a wonderful thing. We we become more, as we become more and more like him, we begin to, 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 to have more and more joy because think about it this way. God, Father, Son, and Spirit is a God of complete joy and complete love. And so the more we become like him, the more joyful we become, the more loving we become, which is wonderful for us and wonderful for everybody. This crop looks like uh, others being influenced for good from our lives, even people coming to faith in Jesus by our testimony. This looks like, in the future, heavenly rewards that are talked about being given to us for serving the Lord. We've read about uh, the, the judgment seat of Christ. We read uh, throughout the, the New Testament how God will reward us for living for him. Uh, we'll see more of that in verses 9 and 10. But just for now, realize that every, every time that you please the Spirit, every time, there is reward for you in heaven for doing that. In addition to the blessing of doing that right now. It is always worth following Jesus. Every single time. No one is ever going to be in heaven and say, oh, I needn't bothered doing that in terms of pleasing the Spirit In other words, it's always worth following Jesus. Every single time. Always, always, always. If you ever wonder, is it worth obeying? The answer is always yes. Every time. Without question. It is good for our joy. It is good for our love of of others. It is good for the future when we stand before God and we're, we're rewarded. It is always yes. It's worth obeying Jesus. And that just as the the, the sowing to please the flesh and the consequences of that should cause us to want to flee sin and run away from that, this should make us want to run to Jesus and live for him with all that we've got. It should motivate us to live for him so that we reap eternal life. Because all of us are sowing one kind of seed or another in our lives. And we will reap what we sow. All of us in this room have sown and do so to please the flesh. You can admit that, can't you? Let's strive to sow to please the Spirit. C.S. Lewis is helpful in summing up these verses well in a chapter on morality in his book, Mere Christianity. Uh, It's quite a long quote, but I'm going to read it to you because I think it's really helpful. He says, People often think of Christian morality as a kind of bargain in which God says, if you keep a lot of rules, I'll reward you, and if you don't, I'll do the other thing. I do not think that this is the best way of looking at it. I would much rather say that every time you make a choice... You are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before, and taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, or your life, or, or, or your life, lifelong. You are slowly turning the central thing either into a heavenly creature, or into a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven, that is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power, and to the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence and eternal loneliness. Each of us, at each moment, is progressing to one state or the other. And so I guess the question to ask ourselves this evening is this. Where are you progressing to overall? Are, are, you, are you sowing to please the flesh or the spirit? Now, none of us are perfect. We've all sowed to please the flesh, and we do so at times. This is not about being perfect. But are you repenting of sin and sowing seed to please the Spirit. And if you are doing so, then you can be assured that over time you are being conformed into the image of Christ, what C.S. Lewis calls here a a creature of heaven, a heavenly creature. But I want to close with one um, final thought. Paul speaks of here the, the moral law of the universe. You reap What you sow. He speaks of it like the natural law of the universe in that sense. But however, consider this for a moment. God, at times in his word, intervenes in the natural law of the universe to fulfill his purposes, doesn't he? These interventions are called miracles. So, for example, the natural law of the universe dictates that if someone stops breathing, They are dead, and they do not come back to life. But at times, God has intervened, and he has raised the dead. And there are many miracles of of such kinds throughout the scriptures. But the greatest miracle of all is the intervention of God into the moral law of the universe, in a sense. Because when Jesus died on the cross, his death was him reaping the destruction of, That we sowed by our sin. And when Jesus rose from the dead, we reap the eternal life that he sowed by his defeat of sin and death. You see, that's the miracle. The Christian does not reap finally the destruction that we have sown, Jesus reaped that for us. We reap what Christ has sown. Isn't that wonderful? So we will not suffer as his people the final destruction. And so now let us live as a forgiven people and sow this week the seed that pleases the Spirit. Let us make progress into being conformed into the image of Christ, fleeing sin and living for Jesus. Let's do that as his people in the joy and the wonder that he forgives all of our sin. So our final songs that we're going to sing are really prayers, asking God to give us a heart that seeks to honour him and to live uh, for his glory. So our first song is, "O oh for a heart to praise my God, a heart from sin set free. Let's pray this as we sing. And then our final song is King of Kings, Majesty, where we commit to laying all before his throne. So let's stand and sing together. For I just pray, let me just say that last week we were called to bear one another's burdens. And if any of you are struggling with sin and need prayer, then please let's help each other uh, to bear those burdens together as his people. These words that we've read tonight challenge us, but do not crush us. God has forgiven our sin and he's given us his Holy Spirit to help us. So let me close with prayer. Our Father, we want to thank you that you don't uh, treat us in such a way that we are mocked by you. You show us reality. You show us what sin is like. You don't try and pull the wool over our eyes. And we thank you for this because we know that we can be forgiven of our sin as we come to you. And so we're not crushed by the challenge we've received tonight. But Father, we are, by your Spirit, motivated to live for you. And so we pray Holy Spirit, help us. Help us to live for Jesus this week, knowing that our labor for the Lord is not in vain. Help us to help one another in that fight for holiness, so that as your people, we would shine as lights for Jesus and draw others to yourself. We ask these things in the mighty name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.